sometimes struggle to get up in the morning or wind down for bed at night. I used to find it so difficult. I woke up with no sense of positivity and brightness. I was void of motivation and spirit. This changed completely when I started waking up with a Lumi body clock. These incredible devices mimic the light and colour of a real sunrise and sunset, transforming the experience of waking up and going to sleep completely. Rather than being suddenly woken up with an alarm clock, the Lumi body clock will wake you up gradually with a natural sunrise. The Lumi body clock has been shown to improve the quality of sleep and awakening and to boost mood and productivity in clinical trials. You can personalise your sunrise and sunset from 15 to 90 minutes with their clinically tested unique natural light and more than 20 sleep and wake sounds. We all deserve to sleep well and to wake up feeling fresh. So if you're finding this a challenge and you want to try a new approach, go to lumi.com. The immediate family, I mean, some people look at this as an offshoot from the, the group The Section, which we had back in the early 1970s, uh, which was James Taylor's uh, band and Jackson Brown's band. Uh, we we would go on the road with them and uh, open the shows with our music, and then we would uh, play their shows. And it was Russ Kunkel, Danny Korchmar, Craig Durge, and myself. And we were a uh, kind of a rock fusion instrumental group. Um, now, lo, these many, many decades later, um, Danny uh, Korchmar got offered a record deal uh, with a label out of Japan. I think it's Vivid Records. And um, so to uh, come up, you know, with what they wanted him to do was make an album of songs he had written, uh, produced or whatever he had uh, um, a part of through his career, kind of to record them the way he he himself felt them. And uh, he took a chance. He, he didn't think any of us would be around, but he called uh, Russ and I, Kunkel and I, and we were both in town. And uh, this wasn't going to take a long time. We, we know what we do. And we were anticipating probably about four or five days at the most in the studio. Well, we, 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 we got in the studio. Uh, Danny had hooked up uh, during this period uh, the at least like the uh, like six months beforehand or so with a friend of ours uh, named Steve Postel and they lived right near each other and they did some gigs together and Steve helped him with pre-production so when it came time to go in the studio um, Steve came along also uh, we wanted Wadi Wachtel also but Wadi was on the road at that time with Stevie Nicks but he was going to be in town for the last day of recording so he came down and we cut all these tracks and we cut a ton of songs and songs like Machine Gun Kelly that James Taylor had covered, All She Wants to Do Is Dance and Dirty Laundry that Cooch wrote with Don Henley. Um, so we completed the album. And then I guess when the, uh, the label was going to call it Danny Korchmar and, and Danny came up with the name Immediate Family. He said, look at these guys really are my immediate family. We've been together over 50 years. And except for Postel, who's like the new kid on the block, he's, <laughs> uh, you know, he's like 10 years younger than everybody else. So we, uh, we just give him a lot of crap. Um, <laughs> but uh, but um, so Danny came up with the Immediate Family idea. And it's a very different animal than the section was in terms of 
it's more pop driven. There's vocals on everything. Um, and then we went to Japan and toured over there, did a live album over in Japan and came back and got a record deal in, in America with a label Quarto Valley Records. And, uh, and so we've been with them and, and gigging. And now we're just about finished with a new album. Oh, wow. Um, it's, it's in being um, mixed right now. Um, Nico Bolas, who engineered and mixed the previous album and engineered this one, is mixing this one. I think I think he's seven tracks into it. We got about 14 or 15 songs. And it's some of the best stuff we've ever done. The writing is really incredibly good on this. Uh, performances are great. And we have gigs starting in um, November, I believe, uh, out here on the West Coast. And in the in, in the interim of all of this stuff, uh, Denny suddenly came along and uh, pitched doing a documentary about us. And for the past, I don't know, four years now, has it been that you've been working on this? Just before COVID, so 2019. Okay, yeah, okay. Three years. Yeah, yeah. Few, few years here. And um, for me, I was, I, I was, thrilled and 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 alarmed at the idea of it because the wrecking crew movie to me is one of the best music documentaries anybody's ever done and uh and i loved all the i knew most everybody in the wrecking crew and worked with most of them so it was yeah. thrilling but the idea from my standpoint is i'm used to always being asked can we do an interview with you about so and so um i've never been the center of attention which all of a sudden where the group is finding itself as the artist rather than the side person that's uh, that's you know going to spend you know a minute being interviewed uh, on camera so when when i finally saw it i kind of just sat there in in sort of disbelief kind of going this is so weird you know it's like we're the center of this thing. But Denny's done an unbelievably fabulous job on this he's an incredible i mean he paid me for all this bullshit I'm telling you right now. <laughs> just for the just for the listeners, um, ask first of all about you know the wrecking crew and the reception that it had. Um, was that what kind of gave you the impetus to start this? And were, were you still wrapping up the wrecking crew project when you um, had this idea? No, no, wrecking crew. I started in '96, and then it really went all the way to 2015 when it was that distribution and Magnolia picked it up then. So I had been done with the Wrecking Crew, but there was a lot of uh, post-traumatic stress from Wrecking Crew because it took so long to get it made because I started when my father was passing away in 96, 97. So I never got it really finished for the festivals until 2008. And then no one wanted to help us because the music was gonna cost so much. So it wasn't until 2000, 14 that I pay everybody off that we were able to find someone to pick up the the documentary Wrecking Crew. So my concern was I don't ever want to do another music doc again unless it's literally a uh, harmonica player and he's a soloist. That's it. And he's written his own stuff because I, I was just like I was frightened. I was not frightened, but you know what I mean? It's exhausting um, to deal with uh, music. Um, you know, and, and, and the other thing is, there's a lot of great stories out there. I'm an amazing group of stories. You know, every town has somebody, every city, you know, 
there's always something there, but you got to find a hook, you know, in a lot of ways. And, you know, and then this came up, the guy, these producers came to me and said, would you guys want to, would you be interested in doing this? I jumped at it, you know, and luckily the guys, you know, Leland and I only knew Leland really. I didn't know the other guys. I mean, I knew of them, you know, they're all legends, but it was like Leland was always there for the wrecking crew. So in a sense that that was my, um, only knowledge or personal knowledge or knowing these guys. But it was like, it made total sense to jump to this because in the end of the wrecking crew, and I don't know if you remember this Leland, um, Lou Adler, my question to Lou was what made the change? Was it a, when you start doing tapestry, he goes, it wasn't a, a conscious decision for him to use other musicians at that point. When Carol King did tapestry, he goes, Carol brought in her own people. She brought in, you know, James Taylor and, and Danny Coachma, you know, for her, and th those were her friends. So it seemed like the perfect segue from Wrecking Crew into the next era, you know, and uh, that's it, it was a perfect layoff, really. You know, and the idea, the fact that they were called the immediate family was the hook for me because, you know, I at the beginning of Wrecking Crew. I said, ex the words were, this is the story of my father and his extended family, the wrecking crew. So it's kind of weird when you think about it, because it's, yeah, you know, it's not a conscious decision. It was almost like, here it is, let's lay it up for you, Danny, take it. And then, and the, the obvious comparisons are, you know, from both sides of the world, you know, the wrecking crew and these guys, um, the differences are really, the things um my dad and those guys went did three hour sessions they were boom 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 you know you had three hours to knock off three or four songs and you could do three or four of those dates a day and they never really spent time on things as much and then these guys came in and you know and i'll let leland take it from there and then leland went on the road and these guys went on the road to support the things they were recorded wrecking crew never did that so it was kind of a nice you know it was a good comparison as well as you know you can see the differences yeah absolutely um it's it's such a amazing story in the sense that it wasn't something that you sought out but it, it is the perfect like sequel in a way to the wrecking crew movie and i mean arguably you've covered essentially the two most important groups of musicians well the, the most important groups of musicians from the 60s and then the 70s um, and and um, what Leland was touching upon earlier uh, about suddenly being the artist as opposed uh, to the side sideman is that something um, that you're enjoying and the the guys in the band are enjoying, or is that something that um, you're finding a bit of a drag? It'll never be a drag. It would never be a drag. It's just unique at this point. It's something that we've never really. I mean. I get stopped on a, I mean, because I've committed to an image that <laughs> yeah. is, is recognizable, um, I can't go to the supermarket without somebody stopping and asking, are you, are you, you look just like Lee Sklar kind of thing. Um, I've, it, it's, it's never bothered me. I'm really, I really enjoy, you know, talking to people and stuff and always having been a sideman, it's always been very benign where like if I was Phil Collins and somebody saw me, they would be crapping their pants, but they come up to me and they go, God, I saw you with Phil Collins, man. You guys played. I love it. 
it's a really easy relationship that I have. So suddenly to find yourself more the center of attention, because I've always been a peripheral person and you know, I've always been floating on the outside of all of this stuff. So it's interesting. I think the thing I'm mo most curious about um, is going to be uh, this coming Friday. Uh, when we play the very first, when we're at the very first uh, film festival uh, that uh, of hopefully a whole bunch of them yet to come, uh, to, to, to actually sit with an audience and, and see people that aren't involved in this, watching it and see what their response is, see how, what it means to them and doing a Q&A afterwards and talking to people and get a feel for it because we're, we're too close. Uh, but one of the things I remember Denny and I talked about uh, way early on in this is when, you know, th there was the whole thing with the Wrecking Crew that they really were studio musicians and they they cranked out day after day uh, as many sessions as they wanted to fit into their schedule they would be hired for. And um, but it was really over about a, a 10 to 12 year period, I think, that they were really at the height of their powers where with us, the, the unique part of the, this group of guys is we've been doing this for now 52 years together. And we still work. Yeah. Russ, Russ Kunkel and I just got off the road with Lyle Lovett. We just spent the whole summer out. So I'm, I'm sitting there looking next to me at Russ, who I've been looking at next to me for 52 years. And we're still loving playing together. We get off every night. People comment at all the gigs. They go, it's so amazing to watch you guys play together. It's like this thing that happens and and it's the same with all of us so it's it's a different kind of thing this has been a really long-term relationship and and for the fact that we are like just finishing a new album i mean it, we're not a a, a, a a like a nostalgia group who had hits in the 80s and we're going out on the road doing our songs from the 80s i mean we're at going out with all new material that, that people haven't heard before so it's still a real viable, uh, exciting uh, project to be involved with. And uh, mm. it, it amazes me. It really kind of blows my mind that we've had this longevity. I mean, when you look at groups like the Stones and these groups like that, there's a, just a few out there that really have held on to it, even though with us, we're actually the same guys intact. It's not like any members have changed. All we did was add Steve Postel to the mix. But but Wadi came joined up with us in the mid seventies, and uh, and we've all been you know working as a as a family uh, in different you know like Russ and I go out I'll go out and do sessions with Wadi or with Cooch, and then there's times where they want to have the entire group on a project, and uh, like we just did Susanna Hoff's album from the Bangles, and we all were right, all cool. on that. So there's, you know, I mean, there's a there's a vibrance to to this group of people, um, to me that that's as dynamic today as it was when we first played together in 1970. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's a huge difference between, you know, when I was interviewing my dad and those guys, you know, they were in their 60s or whatever, 70s. That they, they weren't playing. The only one of that group still plays is Don Randy, and that's it. You know, he's 85. But at that point, their careers, once studio work stopped for everybody, it was it. You know, these guys never had, never had that. Um, it, there wasn't a cutoff for them. 
you know, they were continuing to do studio work, but also they were continuing to do uh, road stuff, you know, or, you know, live stuff. So that's a huge difference in their careers, you know. And so that's what's so great about it. The fact that, you know, and they're not even, it's not like, a, like you said, it's not a nostalgia band. And it's, and what's amazing is you're watching four, five of the great musicians, some of the greatest musicians, at, and I hate to say at this age, because it doesn't matter. You're 75, 74, it doesn't matter. You're still kicking its ass as if you guys were 24. So it's the same guys. It's just, you know, they're just a little grayer and some bolder. A lot grayer. <laughs> and, and, and a lot bolder for us. <laughs> and Denny, yeah, I, with, the, with the movie, um, yeah. Did you was it a challenge or how did you strike the balance between discussing kind of the incredibly well the huge amount of credits? I mean, is Leland I think the most or I've heard stats sort of the most credited bass player in the history of popular music or something like that. And everybody in the band has played on so many incredible records. How difficult was it to strike the balance between covering all of that side of things and then actually focusing on what's arguably more exciting in that they're now making albums under the name the immediate family and 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 this new story oh that's a good question it, you know here's the thing is you got to hook the audience it's easy to hook an audience with just the hits you know every one of them has huge hits they all you know there's a lot of them but it's really it comes down to the story you could it's not a jukebox you know you just you could play all the time but if you don't have something in between the real story and the heart it's just a jukebox, you know, documentary. And, you know, and I, I don't want to do that. I want to know what, you know, I want to know what makes them tick. I want to know their beginnings, why, you know, you know what I'm saying? In the media family, it's not also, we're not doing a, oh, look, they're putting a band together. Blah, blah, blah. It's not that kind of a doc. It just happens to be their band, you know, as friends now. So it was more following their careers, following the, how it works. And in the interviews with Carol, I'm telling you, it was the easiest doc I've ever worked on in terms of trying to get talent to talk about them. I mean, within the first day we met with these guys and they said yes. And then within, they said, okay, the next day someone said, okay, well, Carol King said she'll do the interview in three weeks. It was like, oh my God, I didn't even have the story down. You know, I didn't know where I was going with it. I was winging it when I was meeting with them you know, throwing them bullshit and they went with it. Um, but, still you know, are. then I'll, yeah, <laughs> still sucking you in. And then we, then it was like Linda Ronstead, James Taylor, Jackson Brown, Phil Collins. Um, we had Lou Adler. I mean, this was all within like two months. We had wow. everybody in the can before we started in August or September, 2019. Everything was in the can of the artist almost before COVID hit, thank God. Because we would never have been able to get Linda Ronstead and, you know, it would have been very difficult. I went and got Don Henley. Uh, I got David Crosby. Um, Neil later, Young. And Neil Young, you know, so these folks came in later. But, and then we got these guys in the, you know, and it was, once COVID hit, then it was like, uh-oh, we got to, you know, slow down, but let's keep going. And then we started um, interviewing the four guys, five guys, and that's how it went down. 
but it was the easiest thing in terms of the talent that wanted to talk about them could not stop. Honestly, it was, you know, there were no gatekeepers. Usually you have a gatekeeper. There was no gatekeeper. They would, that's the difference because they're still friends with Jackson. They're still friends with James. They're still friends with Linda and Carol. Do you mean that friendship never went away either? My father never, you know, he wasn't hanging out with Briar Wilson, you know, or Frank, you know, or any of those people. That wasn't the way it went. These guys were friends with them. Yeah. Uh, and and um, so that actually leads me to definitely a question that the younger, like aspiring uh, session players or musicians or, you know, whatever you want to call them listening to this, uh, they always ask, uh, so they'd de definitely be good to put this to Leland. Um, you know, bearing in mind how bearing in mind how easy it was um, for Denny to get those interviews. Um, to what extent do you attribute um, your success in being able to work with all these amazing artists down to all of your musicianship? Um, how important is also the the sort of you know being very pleasant, being a good hang, and all of that. Um, versus the musicianship, which has obviously been there all, all along. I, I think I think it's uh, incredibly important to be not not in in a phony or you know kind of creepy way of being somebody they want to hang out with, but you we all really had a mutual respect for each other between the the band and the artists we were working with. Everybody. Uh, it's very, very engaged. It isn't a separation of church and state kind of a thing. It's uh, we all got along great uh, as friends. And I think that that was one of the things I've, I've always looked at at my career. A certain chunk of it was a, a, an opportunity came to me back in like 1970 that I had whatever they were looking for. I had the ability to do it. So that happened. But also just just the fact that like when we were in the studio when we're in the studio um we become more engaged than just hired help uh you know always you know always go and listen to to playbacks throw out throw out suggestions um make suggestions on something you know even if it's to the point of saying to the artist are you sure about the key this might sound but you want to just try it maybe down a half step because it sounds like, you know, I mean, we're, we're more engaged than playing your part. And then decisions are made in the in the control room and you're just sitting on your phone or doing whatever um, are the relationship we've had. And this is with um, for me, almost every artist I've ever worked with. It's not just, you know, you know, the Phil Collinses and James Taylors. Uh, I've worked on thousands of records with people nobody's ever heard of or may ever hear of but to me the i have two options when the phone rings i can say yes or no and if i if i say yes it comes with obligations and and i and the obligations are ones i create for myself about in, being engaged being on time um you know th there's a, a, a multitude of things that that i i consider make this a profession and a lot of guys are real lax about it. You know, they, they just you know, kind of act like they don't care or, you know, like, oh, my playing's good enough. That'll get me by. And at times they don't they don't get a call back because the person just didn't get the vibe from them like they really cared about their project. Um, but we've you know, we go in. We've gone in really deep with most of the artists we've worked with. And uh, 
and and I can honestly say, like you know, I I've been I've enjoyed that aspect of this so much to be able to work for me and many, many genres from television and movies and country and jazz and hip hop and, and rock uh, to have friends and, and compatriots in all of these genres has really been nice for me. It keeps everything fresh and exciting by having something, you know, to kind of have to pull your big boy panties up and uh, go for it stuff. So, but you know, it's a, it's a, it's a hard gig. I mean, you know, everybody always kind of looks at it and goes, Oh, you know, it's going to be so much fun. It is fun, but it is hard. You got to be on your game all the time. Um, and there are times you walk in and somebody plays you their music and it's sucks. It's just <laughs> horrible, but you, you do it the best you possibly can and do all you can to try to make it better knowing that probably nobody's ever going to hear this. There's a lot of projects that become vanity projects and somebody's paid for it and stuff, but you know, you want to, here's make a question. Yeah. Did you ever have something that was, Oh God, I can't believe this is so bad. And then it became a hit. You don't have to oh, name it. Yeah, no, that, that, That's the number one record. And other times you, you play on something that you think is one of the best things you've ever worked on and it doesn't even get released. Yeah. There's some, some albums I worked They may have had a, a, a change of hierarchy at the label. And what happens yeah. when, when that goes down is generally the new people who are coming in, they want to get rid of everything previous to that and only want their stuff to be so some of these great projects that were right on the edge of being finished get canned um and it's and you just sit there i i went through this with mac davis um and, oh, yeah. and mac, i loved mac davis and we did an album with jack nietzsche producing him and when we did this this album it was it was kind of like somewhere if if you ever heard the last album that johnny cash did which was really dark and and it was almost like nine inch nails kind of a vibe yeah. to this thing. Oh. And when we and when we did this album, we did like there's a classic old song Maybelline, but we did it really slow and dark. And uh, when they turned it over to the label, the label said, "This is incredible. Who is it?" And they said, "What's well, Mac Davis?" They said, "We can't release this. It never Mac got released because Mac, Mac's audience probably would not yeah. accept." And every time I would talk to Mac after that, we would go, but that album, you know? See, now I wonder where is that at? That's the thing I always say. There's so much of that out there. And it's like, why not try to find it and release it today? What would happen? It would be really cool. It would That'd be a huge audience. Yeah, I have no idea who, who possesses that. Mac is no longer alive. Um, yeah. So I have no idea where that is, but you know, there were times like I remember recording "It's Raining Men" with the Weather Girls. Yeah. Uh, but when, when we cut that originally, uh, it, the song was written by Paul Jabara and and and, and Paul uh, from uh, uh, Paul. God, how can I be blanking here? From uh, Jesus, my brain is a keyboard player. It's, yeah, it is. It's like, Billy Preston? Uh, no, no. Um, Paul from what's his Letterman uh, show? 
Oh, Paul Schaefer. Schaefer. Okay, so it was Paul Jabara and Paul Schaefer wrote that song. Paul Jabara was supposed to be the artist on it because it was going to be this big, you know, like gay anthem at that point. And when they finished it, they kind of went, ah, this is not really what we want. So they they got the girls who were called Two Tons of Fun and renamed them the Weather Girls. And then they recorded it and it became like the, the anthem of the disco scene and, and all right. of that. But when we were cutting it, we we're all just kind of going, really? really? <laughs> <laughs> and here it is, so like to this day, as soon as that song starts, people all just start dancing and stuff. So you just, you just don't, I mean, if you knew, I would definitely be a, a shitload richer than I am now if I knew all of that stuff. Uh, but, you know, I just, uh, I feel so, so really kind of blessed that I've been able to uh, kind of take this journey that I've had my whole life. And and for the fact that it's still going on, I mean, I just did a session the other day for an artist from Helsinki and uh, and we just, re they just released an album by this girl, um, Lari Basilio, who's like this monstrous guitar player out of uh, Brazil. And uh, we did that with Vinny Caluda playing drums. So I mean, wow. I'm so grateful, man. Anytime the phone rings and somebody calls me to do something, I still feel like a kid in a candy store. You know, I'm, I'm thrilled to get a call and go in and potentially maybe meet some players I've never worked with before, you know, just to... You must have met so, so many people that like, but no yeah. one could even conceive of. And it's so thrilling to have this documentary get made just to document all of your careers uh, in some way that's like this high profile, I think is wonderful. Um, and what I wanted to know as well is um, where is this first festival that's coming up on on Friday, did you say? It's, uh, yeah, start, we start at Woodstock on the 30th, which sold out, which is great. And then we go to, Leland and I go to Wichita, Tallgrass Film Festival, the Saturday, the next day. And then the next day we fly to Nashville. And um, it's crazy. I mean, because it's like one, two, three, and then we come back. And when's this airing, Tom? When are you going to put this out? This can air whenever you want it to, um, whenever would make most sense promotionally for you. Um, wh when do you think that will be? I mean, that's what I'm wondering is because I'm thinking is, do we, if it doesn't go out this week, which this sounds like it's too close anyways, why don't we put it into uh, mid-October, if that's okay? Absolutely. Because we've got San Diego. Yeah, totally. That's two weeks. <laughs> this is crazy. It's like, oh, my God, we're already there. Because we go to New York City. We're not supposed to announce it, but we're in, uh, we go to New York City. Uh, for the Doc Fest, and then we're in uh, St. Louis, um, in Coronado, and um, yeah, so that's where we San Diego, yes, yeah, San Diego, Phoenix, Phoenix, yeah. So we're bouncing around. So this is a really so, crucial time time for you, and I mean, obviously, it's yeah. difficult to say exactly, you know, what you were are aiming towards with with everything, but you know, yeah, this it's, release, it's, what would make you? It's happy? weird because. Or what would make me happy? <laughs> in terms, say, in, ter hey, in terms of like what what would be like what would what would a good release schedule like? together? Just love to do it. <laughs> um, someone would come in and just say, "Yes, we want to buy this from you people, and this is great, and we're going to publicize it." But basically, what we do now is because we're grassroots, uh, meaning like it's still us doing it. 
Uh, we're going to hit the festivals. We make the most noise we can. Uh, when I go to town, it's something I kind of learned and also developed, but I learned some things from the musicians. Um, basically, every town I go to, I try to hit every music store, every music school, every studio, and I tell them ahead of time, hey, I got this film, I'm coming into town, da 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 And basically, I try to encourage them to tell their students or come on out. And that's how it works, because the more people I get signed up, in a sense, they start spreading the word. It's like yeah. literally 10 people tell 10 people. Now we're up to 100 people and it keeps going. Um, you know, we didn't have two weeks ago. We had nobody signed up on the website so that they could see that. Then once we put the trailer on there, now we're at like 2000 people. You know, so those 2000 people need to tell another 2000 people. And what that does is it gives credibility to us for when all of a sudden distributors go, oh yeah, I heard about that. I mean, it's crazy. It really is crazy, but that's how the Wrecking Crew made it. Um, yeah, I, I remember just you kept saying. Traveling. But just, I'm really I mean, I was literally you have to do that okay. again. Um, I'm, was there yeah, not a case of someone just saying immediately after your success last time um, and bearing in well, mind we had, this, this subject matter? Well, we had investors this time. We had, that's the difference. You know, my wife would have killed me if I put any money into this one. <laughs> I would have had my ass killed. Um, so there were people that believed in it to invest, but you still have to find the distributors. So you have private investors and you get that. And then you go to the big boys and, you know, everybody wants, you know, Lino, this business can suck. Can suck the school out of you. You know, you think it's going to be easy the second time. It's like we've already proven it. But in a sense, we've already proven it with the first film. And you know what? That's why, you know, when people see when they're getting the festivals are getting this film and going, oh, yeah. And now at least they take a look at it quickly and they go, yes, we love it. That's the great thing for me is being you're accepted. Coming, you're coming in with creds at this point. Yeah. Yeah, with the, with the Wrecking Crew, it, the, the thing you had at that point is a name that people who in that understood the music business and all that. The name Tedesco carried a shitload of weight because his because nah. his dad was one of the greatest mm, players yeah. that's ever graced this, this industry. So that even if they didn't quite know what was going on, they'd say, "I wonder if the, any relation to Tommy Tedesco." But that would be yeah. inside within the business. Um, but that's but that's inside. Yeah. But now we're dealing with the actual buyers. They don't give a shit. <laughs> they go, no, that's, that's giving me the cred to talk to the players and the artists. Yeah. That's been the best part. And, you know, thank God my father wasn't an asshole. You know, that's, you know, he was a very giving person. So that would have been, if he was some of the other people that we know in the business, <laughs> I don't think it would have ever gone anywhere, <laughs> you know. So, um, he was, but no, he was the best. He was the best. <laughs> I love I, Tommy. I, th I think that, I mean, I would, I would love to think that uh, the people would, you know, give a shit, like in the sense of the minute they hear uh, the name, uh, any of the musicians involved in the immediate family movie, uh, yeah. the music they, they've been involved with and the Wrecking Crew movie. But as you say, I guess it is, you know, it is you just know their stuff. It's yeah, but you also, they do. They know it, but they don't know that they know it. That's the crazy thing about it. 
you know, until they see the films and they see this, but it's really, a, it's always a business. So we need to make sure, and I say this, we, all of us, you know, yeah. and your listeners and viewers, it's like, hey, you need to look at that trailer and go, oh yeah, or share it on Instagram or share it on this, because that's how we make, that's how we get, get it out there. And, you know, because these podcasts are huge for everybody. You know, the importance of a podcast, we didn't have that. You know, I didn't have that in 2015. But I knew when I went into a, a town, it would be 2008, 2010, or whatever it was, I would find the local AM station, you know, where there was talk radio. Because I knew talk radio can hit a thousands of people very quickly. Do you know what I mean? And it, it, it gets your message across. You know, so that was the way I, you know, and so podcasts now are just, you know, are saving grace for these films, you know. Yeah, um, well, well, I hope, I hope, well, I know that the listenership uh, or a large proportion of this listenership uh, are going to be absolutely thrilled about this movie because it's basically all oh, it's everybody's spent their brilliant. time listening to. Um, no, I mean, it's, that is the greatest thing was for me was a i was you know second guess always second guess yourself do can i pull off a second film um but i can only pull it off as if these guys were willing to go there and they didn't hold back you know they they were given they were very giving you know because you know you sometimes you ask questions that might be a little hard to talk about you know or things that come up and but they were amazingly there's no holding back at this at this point you know they just give it to you and that's what's so much fun well i you know, I, I, you, yeah. I can't wait to see this movie um and also i yeah I, I just think it's so brilliant um to to document the musicians who've played on all these records who don't in my view get enough credit and and one of the things that i wanted to make sure that i asked uh, leland about uh, because there's somebody who uh, is a dear friend of mine uh, and my girlfriends, um, who's another of the great uh, session players, um, Nigel Olsen, uh, who um, Leland uh, played on some of Nigel's solo records um, yeah. in the 70s. And I've seen, I think you recorded a great um, one of your YouTube episodes about this album, but I just wanted to, yeah. to, to ask you directly, do you have fond memories of those sessions? And I mean, what a all-star cast was involved um, in making oh, those records. Absolutely. And plus, Nigel and I got to do like we did Atlantic, Cross, Atlantic Crossing with, uh, with Rod Stewart. We played on tracks together on that. Um, when Nigel, when when Elton hit town, it was like a hurricane came into town with Dee Murray and Nigel and, and Elton just kind of changed the music scene. And so the, the minute I got a chance to, to work with Nigel and then later on um, with that group of people, um, I loved it. I, I loved, you know, Nigel and plus I, I grew up a car guy and Nigel was like a Ferrari guy. He used to race, um, Ferraris and, um, and, but he has just, Nigel has such a unique sound to himself. His, his approach to playing and stuff was always just great. He's the first guy I saw that wore gloves when he played and stuff. Um, but just meant a delightful delightful man to be around and and it thrills me to see him still out there you know with elton you know that's one of those incredible relationships that that's 
gone on for decade after decade, you know, a couple breaks here and there, but for the most part, but yeah, Nigel's, Nigel's great. And I really like with my YouTube channel, really try to pay respects and honor all the players I've worked with over the years. I mean, artists are one thing, but you've got this whole wealth of musicians behind them whose names aren't on the marquees in front of the venue and, and people are, are not aware of. And mm -hmm. uh, it's really fun for me to, you know, turn people on to, to all, all these people. And that's the weird part of the, again, with the movie is it'd be one thing if, if Denny did a documentary and it was a documentary about Phil Collins, well, you got to give an audience right there. That's that are Phil fanatics who would go see anything at that point if Phil's name was on it. Um, but he, basically we're going into something where they really, so many have no idea who we are. And so we're really tossing a lot of fate to the wind that this is going to be discovered because it's an incredible story. And when the, mo when the movie starts, it's, it's a really fabulous thing where there's this, this tree and in the root system of the tree is, is all of us. And every leaf on this tree is a different artist's name. Oh yeah, and I've seen the I've seen yeah. the, the poster. It's unbelievable. Like, it's unbelievable. Because I mean, I, I I as a musician and for what I do, I live for today and tomorrow. I don't think about yesterday. So all of a sudden seeing your 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 career uh on display that you never think about uh is it's it's a weird moment. It's it's really strange, but uh, when I look at like the Wrecking Crew, uh, to me that movie should be required. Every music department in every school in in the world should have that. Along, you know, along with the other ones, Standing in the Shadows, anything that's paid homage to the to the kind of unsung heroes of the music business. Um, it's 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 such a valuable story for aspiring musicians because not everybody's going to be the artist. I mean, there's a there's a finite amount of people that are going to be up there on the marquee, but you know they come and go. Yeah, but you can be one of the guys that when they're not working, you got something else going on, and you keep going. You may not make the huge bucks that they do, but I've always looked at my career as I always wanted to be the tortoise rather than the hare. You know, I love the idea that you know, 52 years into it, I'm still working my ass off. You know, I'm already talking to people about work next year, and I'm already having wow. to turn some work down because I'm already busy. And I'll be 76 when all that's going on. You wow. know, I'm, I'm grateful. I'm grateful every day uh, for for the opportunities that are still here. And uh, it, it and this movie, me. I think, is just yeah. It, but this movie, I think, is really going to blow people's minds. It's uh, it's a quite a it's quite a journey that 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 Denny took us on on this, and it's really. His approach to us. It was like, you know, that's the best thing about it is, is for me, it was like still, yeah, everybody assumes you know everything when you go into this. You must do all this research and da 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 da. You know, in a lot of ways, I don't know shit. You know, there's my friends and some family members have a lot more knowledge of the music than I will ever, honestly. And it's like, for me, it's like, I want to learn as much as the viewer because I, I get off on it. That's where I'm enjoying it. It's like, I don't know the answer sometimes of, to a question. Most well, of the time I don't. The first screening I saw when it was still, I mean, I still haven't seen a finished screening, yeah. but right. the first one, I mean, I 
Things remember what Jackson Jackson Brown was there. Jackson goes, I've known these guys for 50 years. I didn't know this stuff yeah. about them. Wow. You know, it's, it's, a, and I'm it's sure a, you've found things too, right? Yeah, absolutely. There's, there, there, I mean, every time I, I talk to anybody in this business, I'm always finding new things that I never knew, no matter how much time we've spent together, somebody will just drop one sentence and you go, What's it? What? <laughs> really? You know, I mean, no matter how much you think you know somebody, there's always going to be those moments that come along that just kind of catch you off guard and you go, wow. And and I think, you know, that's to me, is it's a voyage of discovery. And I think it's a real enlightening thing because most people don't know what goes on in this business. You know, they so kind of think, well, people go in a room and they play a song and it's over. You know, they have no idea the amount of work that goes into making records and, uh, you know, cutting the track is one thing, but then overdubs and mastering and, and all the things that, that come into play, promotion and all the different fingers that are in the pot. Mm. Um, and this kind of stuff opens up that the, the wrecking crew did, too. Um, it, it's enlightening. If somebody really wants to know more about it, this is really the gold standard for going for it. Yeah, and well, all of the names, um, all of your names, all of the names of the musicians in the Wrecking Crew, but particularly when I've been talking about uh, doing this podcast episode to any musicians out there, um, especially, especially younger musicians, and I say who's who's coming on the podcast, you know, people act like, they actually act like it's Phil Collins or whoever, Don Henley coming on, on the podcast. People have a real respect for session uh, players among musicians. I think it's just going to be a case of, um, also getting just the regular punters, but th there's yeah. already going to be such yeah. a huge um, audience for, for this movie. Um, and when it comes to promoting it, uh, Denny, like the, the previous podcast that we did on The Wrecking Crew, it's unbelievable your story from the first um, movie. Uh, and, and I guess this mirrors a little bit music in a way, like to what extent uh, is the work, the promotion, doing all of these appearances, doing the film festivals, is that even more work than uh, putting together the movie itself? No, no. no at this point, that's, that's fun. That's total. That, really that is the best. I mean, I I've I might complain, you know, sometimes here at home is like I'm exhausted because I'm seriously. I still do the posters to all the different stores and all that and postcards, but there's nothing better than you know calling hey do you know the um you know my i was listening to my nephew making the calls he'd go he'd call somewhere in wichita or a store and he, and he would say you know the wrecking crew da, 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 and they say oh yeah yeah yeah." and then it was like here's the here's the next thing we're coming out da, da, da. and it was like it was easy for him because it was people were recognizing that so it was much easier now than it was before to sell the idea. And you know, and the other thing is I gotta say, and Lee probably knows this better than anybody, if you get out of LA and out of New York and out of the big cities, the rest of the country is so much more receptive to, to things. I mean, it's like here, it's like, God, you try to get, it feels like you're trying to sell something. All I'm trying to do is give you a poster to put in your, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I feel like, it's so easy the rest of the country you know to they're interested and they're nice <laughs> it's like i'm here in la and it's like you feel like uh you know and this yeah. is my hometown yeah 
you know, uh, it's, I, I, I think one thing that, that maybe makes this slightly easier too, and it's sort of this, what we've been talking about the whole time though, is when you were doing the wrecking crew, nobody knew who those guys were because they never um, were out there. They didn't, they didn't get credit on album jackets. So when people were listening to Sinatra and listening to the Beach Boys and listening to the Mamas and Papas, they didn't know they were listening to the same musicians on all those records. Yeah. Where the, the the real blessing for us, and it'll always come back to this, yeah. was, was Peter Asher. Because, uh, you know, Peter, when we started with James, insisted that our names appear on the album jackets. And so when James became like the face of a new genre of music, and all the labels started hiring singer-songwriters, they would look at James's albums as kind of the benchmark of what they would aspire to, and they saw our names on it, so they would track us down and, and hire us Jack, the Jackson Browns, but the Casey Kellys and all, all these different people that were all these aspiring songwriters. And then when we would hit the road, we would end up like with Every town I'd go to, there would be people lined up outside with albums that we've played on, wanting them to be right. signed. So we have, uh, yeah. we already have a certain name recognition and stuff because people have seen us on the road at concerts and stuff like that. And I have people like on Lyle Lovett's tour that we just finished, I had people writing to me going, I had no idea you and Russ were going to be playing. And man, when you guys walked out on stage, I was so glad I got tickets for this show. And you know, and stuff. There's a there's already a kind of a built-in thing there, even though we're sidemen. We're sidemen that have worked our asses off on 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 touring and big tours, so a lot of people recognize us. So it's it's. I think it's a little. Once we get out there, uh, it, it's going to be a fun thing to watch how people respond to this because yeah. they they might already feel a certain vested involvement because because I have people that write to me going. We've never met, but I feel like I know you. you know, I can imagine. All the time. And, yeah, and, and, and I'm hyping. Like, go ahead. The the the. Um, I mean, all, all of you have over your careers become as um, in the music community. I would say, you know, as bigger names as the artists themselves. But one thing I'm curious curious about, um, and both of you might have some kind of knowledge or exposure to this. And it, I guess the situation would have been different with the um, with the Wrecking Crew. Uh, but you hear sometimes, and perhaps it hasn't happened to any of you, about like labels or management, publicists, powers that be, trying to make sure that session players um, are sort of kept out of the spotlight and that, you know, everything's going, uh, all the credit's given to the artist. Has that, is that something that's, that goes on a lot these days or has it gone, gone on? And it, it, is that frustrating? Because I always, like, I, I think a lot of music fans feel that they wished some people got more credit um, I, I know that you're some of the most celebrated uh, session players uh, and musicians of all time, but is is that a th is that a thing in the industry that you've you've seen? Yeah, I don't I don't think it's one of these things where they say don't don't give them any credit. They just don't give a shit about the players. Yeah, you know, all they care about is is product, selling product. Um, where I've worked on tons and tons of records where the artist was never at the sessions, would never met them, or or anything like that. We go in and we do our job to the best of our ability and it goes on. And for the most part, the label really could care less about the, who played on their record. They just want to see the thing sell. And if they had an artist, you know, like a um, anywhere from like a George Michael to a you name it, um, 
I, I doubt if there was one person at the label who really cared who played on it. They might be fans of your playing, but they're not going to use you to to promote the album. They they're just going to go out and, and push the artist. And uh, and and you come to grips with that. I mean, I've worked on a lot of records where, you know, this is always a bone of contention amongst players. Where I've worked on things where I came up with a baseline on a on a project that became the hook of the song but I got no writer's credit for it. But if it hadn't been for that line, the song wouldn't have turned out the way it did and been the hit it is. But if you really start making a big scene about it, they may never call again and I really wanna work. So <laughs> it's it's a, it's a funny place to be in with this. It is, a, it, it, it is a weird thing. Cause it's also like, what are you gonna do? Hold, it's like a doctor holding back. Well, you know what? I'm there. Uh, I don't know. You know, you try your best. You, the goal yeah. is to get the next gig in our business. It's like, we got this gig. We got to get the next one. What's going to get you? I'm going to play my ass off. Yeah. I'm going to come up with stuff. And it's, it's just part of, that's how it used to be with the other guys, you know, and I'm sure it's the same thing. You just play your ass off. You can't, you can't start um, editing um, creativity. Yeah. You know, if you you go in with the attitude that I'm not going to give it my all because you know I don't want to be used, then yeah. then and it's over, your gig's over, done. Yeah. Uh, you really you go in and you give it the best you can you can give it, and uh, and you may be giving away a lot more than just your bass part or your drums or something like that. But it that's what it is, you know. So, but okay. as far as, as far as the labels go. You know, I think, you know, there's, you know, you know, like people from the label might show up at a session and they're all excited. They come in and they recognize the guys that are there. They'll see me or they'll see Vinny Cayuta or Russ or Wadi or, you know, any of the, the cats. And uh, they think it's great. But the minute they walk out the door, they're not thinking about that anymore. They're just kind of walking out going, God, it sounds great. We got a hit record here. And done. The other thing is, you know, it's funny because where you're talking about Peter Asher and all those, when you guys started getting the credits on the albums, that was an extraordinary time. And that went on for so many years. Now we're back to singles again. You're doing, they're releasing songs and singles and they're not even album covers. There's nothing to read. You know, how do you, you know what I mean? It's like, unless I'm missing it. I don't know if it's on Spotify or somewhere else. Are, are there liner notes on these things on Apple? I don't know. Only well, for even the big fans who buy albums. It's yeah, exactly. big fans, isn't it? Uh, the people who buy records see liner notes. People who buy vinyl see liner notes. But for 99%, people are just on Spotify listening to one song again and again because it's the same song yeah. in the same playlist for like two years now. Hits are. Yeah, and, and they're also, they're listening with earbuds like through their phone or something they're not having that unbelievable experience of sitting in front of great stereo equipment you know big macintosh yeah. power amps and big speakers and getting that unbelievable visceral experience of listening to music and and so many of the projects we've worked on over the years were conceptual albums i mean they, they told stories from top to bottom and you know, one my mantra that my personal mantra for this business is don't become an old fart, you know, because things have changed so much. And I love working 
So I don't want to be like grandpa sitting there going, well, back in my day, you know, this is how we did, you know, but there are things that I miss, you know, sitting there being in a mastering uh, situation and listening, creating the space between songs emotionally. How, how, how much space did you want when that first song ends and the second one begins? How did you want to end side A before you flipped the record over? And yeah, I mean, there was a whole journey that you took the listener on that was all very methodically worked out. And now, you know, when you just people are going, they can they can change the order of a record if they buy the whole record. They can you know put it on random, only listen to a couple of tracks they like. It's a different different world, and I would never begrudge it because people are still listening to music. But but there's a lot of it that that I think people are are missing at this point. That was part of really the the craft of making great records. Um, doesn't doesn't quite exist anymore. Now, or once in a while, people there's still people that want to do boutique records. When I would go to the Capitol Records building and go hang out with Ron McMaster in the back, and he was remastering all this stuff because they started pressing vinyl again, and they're selling we were selling more vinyl than anything else. Um, you know, the pendulum's always swinging, you know, and some things have come back. And it's, it's hard to, if you got a new album to get it pressed in vinyl now, because the backlog is so deep on the immediate family wanted to do it. And I think they told us it would be nine months before they could press vinyl on it because the backlog for vinyl is so huge now. Have, have you not pressed it on vinyl then? No, no, but we, we plan on it. We want to, but right now we're going to finish it and get it out there. But at some point we'll probably go ahead and do it, but it's just right now it, it, it's uh it, it just we're not going to wait that long to release the album so we're going to release it you know whatever the the most efficient way of getting it out but we would love to do a a vinyl release of of everything we do because that's for that's our that's our heart and soul was always you know living in vinyl yeah yeah people do miss Sounds out like a great time listening to it um from listening to the full albums um and and how, do you both listen to music um now like on spotify apple music or, or or do you listen on on record you know on vinyl or cds or recorded like old school um a little of everything you know and also i'm a, i'm around everything so much that i don't spend a lot of time listening most of the time when i'm in my truck driving is when i'll listen i'll listen to some of the different serious channels you know, I'll listen to Sinatra Channel and I'll listen to the Beatles and I'll listen to um, Symphony Hall and I'll listen to contemporary uh, channels and just get a feel for everything because I love music as an entirety. So kind of any chance to listen to something is fine. But uh, if, I, if I'm home, making time to sit down and listen to music is really hard because it seems like I got I could use 26 hours a day every day just dealing with my life. And so to to take leisure time to sit down and listen, you know, pull out some records and put them on the turntable, even though it's sitting there, uh, it 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 doesn't happen that often for me. Yeah. But yeah, I do well, hear yeah. great I, I hate when people say there hasn't been anything good since Inagata de Vida or you know, and stuff. <laughs> you know, you kind of go, well, even that wasn't very good. So come give me a break. <laughs> But, but, you know, it, it's one of these things I hate when people say, you know, there isn't any good music anymore. I go, there's some great music being made. You may have to dig harder for it. In, in the same way, when I work with young artists, um, 
not even young. I mean, I work with a lot of young artists. You know, it, it's it's interesting to go in a studio working with somebody who could be your grandchild. Yet the minute we start making music, we're all on the same plane with it. But but it it, it it's a situation that um, it, it, it's it, it, I don't know. It, it's it's a very strange business on, on many levels and I, and I uh, absolutely love it and I adore it. Um, but it, but it can be exasperating. But when I work with like an, a, an artist that's maybe getting self-financed to do their album and we finish it, then what do they do with it? They have no idea, you know, because in the old days, you know, when you had a label, they would, you know, you, you knew you were going to kind of probably get screwed um, by the label. I mean, that was kind of a given, but they had a machine for getting stuff on the radio, getting airplay, um, which doesn't exist anymore. So I get these people, that, you know, and they make a great record and they, they start calling or writing me going, anybody, any ideas who we could you know, send this to or anything? Because there, there just isn't anything, you know, you're going to make a quirky video and try to get it on TikTok or something like that, that hopefully will get attention. Um, it's, a di it's a difficult time for, for new artists, no matter how gifted they are. Yeah, uh, the, the business is the problem. It's yeah. funny because what you're saying about the um, you used to hear that all the time at the Q and A's after Wrecking Crew. They don't make music like they used to, and I disagree with them. I, you know, technically, maybe different, or it doesn't matter. I said yeah. there is good music out there. The difference is when I was in '67. I'm only six years old, and we only got a couple radio stations to listen to, and. In those radio stations, the music that's recorded, if you go back 50 years, we're talking 19, what, 17? There's nothing there. The biggest, the only music from the big bands to the 50s, that was it. 20 years, maybe 30 years of music, of recorded music that you could listen to as a, as a society. Nowadays, my kids, they have 60 plus what is it you know we're into 22 you know there's 80 years of music and they could have a thousand million different ways of hearing it and finding it and that's the difference is there's i don't want to say too much there's just so much option out there it's there there's a lennon there's a mccartney there's a ray charles out there they're out there it's mm. just got to find it yeah well, it's, and it's, it's like, also it's like we've telling. all got it for free got, yeah and it's, it's also yeah We've got it for ten for ten, you know, ten bucks a month. We've got every record ever ever recorded. Before beforehand, yeah. you couldn't afford, you know. I still remember when I was like a kid, I couldn't afford to get like help. So I had to listen to with the Beatles for a year. Then I got help, etc. 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 Now you've got it all. So it's abundance. Well, yeah, certainly in the days of, of records. I, I mean, I remember so well like going to somebody's house and hearing a record and going, I gotta go get that. So you bought it. I mean, there was it was a viable business in, in, that could support you. Where once once CDs came along, then all of a sudden, you know, like if there was something you liked, somebody would get a burner and they would just burn, or like somebody would buy it and then everybody would burn a copy. Cause you couldn't do that with cassettes because after like one generation of it, it started to sound like crap. Um, and now just there's an expectation because of this past like 15 years or so that music should be free. You know, yeah. nobody, nobody wants to pay for it. And, uh, and, and, and even if like you had CDs and you were going, well, we're, we're going to charge 
$8 instead of $18. Well, if somebody can get it for free, why would they pay $8? You know, I mean, it's a it's a real difficult they, they thing. Missed boat. They missed that boat a long time ago. The yeah. yeah, I mean, it's really it's really sad because so so many people that when they actually could monetize it as a business could devote all their energy into making music. Where now they have to do other things to pay their bills and all that because the you know w- when you start seeing somebody's had like you know uh, two hundred million you know, hits on, you know, like on YouTube or something. And they, they made $300. (laughs) I mean, like, it's just staggering, you know, things that, that at one point, if you, if you just got a buck for every view or every listen, you'd, you'd be doing great. And that's, that's nowhere near what they were making back in the day. When I work on albums that were selling, you know, a million, two million, five million, ten million albums. I mean, those people were making monstrous amounts of money with that stuff because it, but it was it was treated as a commodity that that was uh, for sale, and not just like somebody's hobby. You know, your own people are almost resentful of, of you charging for your stuff. You know, they they kind of look yeah, at you. Weird. Yeah, it's weird, and it's just. And just it breaks my heart. But there are really talented people out there. But there's, you know, there's issues like, you know, with the schools like Berkeley and MI here in L.A. and all that. Um, The one thing they don't teach is you graduate on Friday. What do you what's Monday going to be? Because you get all these students that come out with monstrous chops and abilities. And there's not a lot of business for them Mm -hmm. out there that viable business. So they have. It's it's a hard road to, to slog, and I don't I don't want to seem negative about it because when I would do like master classes in clinics, I always say, look at you know when the when the Powerball's coming up and things like that, they say chances of you winning are 150 million to one. Yet the next day on TV, there's somebody holding that big cardboard check who won. Somebody's gonna make it in the business. I mean, it's just it's 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 not as easy as it once was. It's a very different business now, but I, I feel we were fortunate to be in like the perfect storm when when the immediate family or the section or each of us as individuals, when when our opportunity came, it was a, a vibrant, exciting industry at that point that you had as much work as you possibly could want, just like the Wrecking Crew guys. I mean, I, I it was easy to do three, four sessions a day for us. Um, six days a week if we wanted to and there was that much music being made uh, where it, it it's not that way anymore um, but when I hear like I go to the trade shows and you hear like young players at these things and you're just going man I wish you all the best I take names down if I can you know send somebody's name out you know and spread it out I want to support the industry's future um, you know I'm at the tail end of my career and there's a lot of people just starting theirs that deserve you know, every opportunity I don't want to see them taken advantage of because they got too much talent to waste. And I have no idea how I got into this discussion. (laughs) Spotify. Yeah, it came came from Spotify. Did you flip the album or not? (laughs) It is is, is like playing live, you know, I guess because the record, you know, record business no longer makes money. Um, But, you know, touring is pretty much like the only thing that, I mean, again, COVID, you know, put put a stop to that. But as that comes on its feet, how important is it for people to just be willing to go out there 
and and play live. And and I mean, well, even with the promotion of this movie, you're going out there uh, doing these film festivals, meeting people in, in person, and like what what you organised, Denny, to promote this movie sounds really exhausting. So that's put a testament to the business side of things versus the creative. Isn't yeah, it? and the way the drag is, there's no money to be made on these things. You know, it's not we don't have a product. You know. Do you know what I mean? It's, I'm not complaining about it. It's it's just part of the thing. You know, you got to have to somehow, uh, you have to promote somehow, even if it's a phone call, even if it's a, a email. I sit here literally like, what stone is not turned over yet? What did I miss? Literally, it's like, oh, you know what? I could have done that. And yesterday I sent a, uh, Lee and I did a little uh, spot for Wichita. You know, just hey, this is Lee and Denny. Da da da. We're going to be in Wichita. Da da da. All right, send that out, and that's where those people are going to be sending it around. So it's like you got to keep thinking about promotion and how to keep the business running. You know, I would like to. It's not a concert that's coming. So no, not like you're you know, like you're, you're charging people to come in and hear your music. This is yeah. all promotion. Um, but yeah. I th I think from the music standpoint. Um, touring's absolutely critical, um, and, and and some you know some people can make a really really good living at it, and other people, um, you know they want to they want to work and get out there, but you know the promoters have suffered through two over two years of COVID, so they're not cutting the deals that they once cut. They're trying to you know like uh, you know readdress re readdress some of the losses that they felt. Uh, during these two years, because a lot of places went under, a lot of clubs and stuff um, went under. But I, I know from my standpoint, I would, I would tour if I if I had to make a choice between recording and touring, I would still choose touring. Um, uh, I love, I love the immediacy of of like I play, I pluck a note on my bass in the studio. That note can be scrutinized for a week. And they can sit around and well, let's move it here. Let's do it. Let's pitch. Let's do the man. When you're playing live, it's over like that, and you're on to the next note. So there's there's none of that that part of it. And I love looking down and seeing people's faces when you're playing that are loving what they're getting. Uh, it's it's just a joy. The tour we just came off of with Lyle Lovett was incredibly hard. We had a 15-piece band, and we went out and we did 60 cities in 74 days on this thing. It was a oh grind, and, and we lost nine. At one point, lost nine guys uh, because of COVID out of the 15. Um, but we never missed a show. We went on and 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 did everything we had to do, and 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 the and the minute it ended, we were kind of going, "Oh shit, it's over," you know. It's it's like it really is a joyous thing to play music live to me. I'm, I'm fortunate that I never had to make the decision of one or the other, but I, I really do love, I was always a, a band guy that I love playing clubs. You know, that was a real big part of my upbringing. So, uh, you know, when, when, when the first time I walked into a studio was literally the first time I ever walked into a studio, yet I was going into the studio as one of the new A A list players, having z almost z I, I had only been in a studio once before in 1968. It, the band I was in, we ended up uh, cutting some demos, and that was it. And the next thing I know, 
because of my relationship with James, as soon as he hit, we were off and running, kind of going, what the hell's going on? I mean, it was really an amazing experience uh, to, to have your career developing at, you know, you, you went from zero to 100 in a second. You know, there was no buildup to it. It was like there. Do you remember we how long? Do you remember how long? Um, Sweet Baby James is the first. No, right? Is that the first one you did, or Mud Slim? Mudslide was the first one, but that wasn't my that wasn't my first studio album. My, no, my but very, yeah. What James? Though, what was what, your first? I think it was. James? I think it was Mudslide. Um, well, how long did you remember? How long it would have taken? Um, how long did Peter take on those albums? Maybe maybe a week or two. Wow. You know, but but then they would go back and and you know deal yeah. with it. But but a lot of that stuff we were doing right on the spot. I mean, James would sit down with his guitar and start playing, and uh, there was no charts or anything like that. Yeah. So when it came together but the thing that was good was the the musical camaraderie between me and russ and cooch and then when craig came into the scene Durgi, um we the ideas came fast and furious <laughs> and uh and so it wasn't like we were laboring for long periods of time i remember i think it was on sweet on on mudslide i think there was a string date on that that the string date ended up costing more than the entire rest of the album, and they didn't yeah. use it. And uh, when it was, a, you know, but our stuff was pretty fast and furious in there. And most records, um, I, to me, if you really are spending a great deal of time working on it, it just means you weren't prepared. You really didn't know what you were doing. So you're spending a lot of time in the studio working on stuff. When I did Spectrum with Billy Cobham, um, we cut all our tracks in two days on that thing. Yeah. And it's still to this day from 1973 to now, people still talk about that album. It's like one of the quintessential fusion albums. Uh, and it was all just raw energy, just one or two takes of each song done. So, wow. but did you have the music to that before? Did you expect hmm? the music? Did, did Billy give you the music before on that one or you just walked no, we in? Didn't know, we knew nothing until we got in the studio. Yeah. And uh, worked with you know, just worked out the heads and stuff, and figured out you know parts to do, and then we just counted it off, and boom, done. Unbelievable. And uh, yeah, I mean, but it's it, it, the the beauty of this this business is there's a certain there's there's a certain kind of outline that almost everything follows in it, yet all the details are totally different every day. So you you, you can't become lackadaisical or, or or assume things are going to happen because every time you walk in a different room different players it may be a similar kind of music that you've been doing but something's going to be different so you're always on your toes it's not like working in a factory where you're dealing with the same part every day you know and you could almost do it asleep uh, that's you know this is the arts are so subjective that uh you know, every day is a new adventure. And I think that's the thing I find so fascinating. There's so many times where I have no idea what I'm what I'm showing up to. I just got a phone call and I'm in a studio and I have no idea what, what style the music is, um, what the songs are. Uh, sometimes there's, there's charts. A lot of times there's nothing. You got Nashville number charts. You got 
you know, completely written out charts. Um, you've got to be so prepared where if they're suddenly they've got a chart in front of you, but they say, uh, could you take it up a third? I think this we, this was written too low. And you got to you're trying to come up with parts and also transcribing in your head. You know, I mean, there's so much that goes on that uh, that makes it terrifying and wonderful at the same time. Yeah, well, you've managed to navigate it in so many different genres. I bullshitted so my way for 52 years. <laughs> and, and, and so with this, with this movie, what can people do, Denny, to, you know, spread the word? How can people kind of support it at this stage or, or watch it? Um, can we go to, uh, is it immediatefamily.com to find out about, you know, where the film's going to be shown? Immediatefamilyfilm.com. Media Family Film, make sure you put the film on the end or you'll go to their website, which is not bad. Except no, it's not even film. yours. That's not even film. Yeah, that's, yeah. And then, um, and from there, basically you see the outtakes. You see the, check out the, uh, sign up, see the outtakes, share them on Instagram, you know, find us on Facebook. I know a lot of people don't do Facebook anymore, but uh, some do. And, yeah. um, and we just keep spreading the word. You know, the outtakes, I was just saying, I wasn't thinking to tell you, Leland, yesterday I was doing, going through your interview. And it's funny because when you put it on a timeline, you know, you, we did like, a, I think we did almost two hours of an interview, which is really long, you know, you know, for one setting. And it's so much fun to listen because you watch and you forget things that you said. And you go, okay, well, that, that's already in the film. That's already in the film. Oh, yeah, I love that line. Well, I love that story. Like I just did something about you joining Toto. And, and the idea was uh, basically the premise of what had happened or my question, whatever the question was, Leland had to join Toto because Mike unfortunately had ALS and it was the tour was falling apart. And he had to learn the book in basically a week. And and that story was so amazing because it shows the professionalism of what, or the credit, what you guys at this level can do, where they're ready to give up the whole tour for Toto unless they can find someone that can walk in and take Mike's place. And it was because it's never going to make it in our film, but you know what? I'm sharing it anyways. And that's the fun part about it. That's why I'm loving this is I'm going through interviews, parts that will never see the light of day unless I put it out there. And it's not because it's not right. It's just because you have to feed that, you know, and you only have 90 minutes in a movie. You have to you make know. some decisions. <laughs> I, I, there are some people out there who would probably watch like, I don't know, you know, 10 hours or 20 hours or whatever of, oh, of, of everything. Because it's, always, that's, like, that's a fascinating that's, story about Toto, for example, like unbelievable. Yeah. 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 You, you know, in, in what you were doing with, I mean, I'm not going to quote Leland because he's right there, but <laughs> I hate to do that. But it was pretty, pretty cool. And then, you know, it's like the same thing happened with the Wrecking Crew because I had so much time where I never stopped interviewing people. And someone said, my editor said, you got to stop interviewing people because I can't put everybody in. I said, that's, yeah, but that's why God gave us DVDs. I said, <laughs> yeah. because. You know, I have six hours of extra footage in that DVD. And it's not, I just wanted everybody's story to get out. There's so much more knowledge that can touch someone and, or, you know, and entertain someone. 
and that's what I'm doing now is like with these guys, you know, Billy Bob Thornton talking about you and, um, and Russ, how you guys, you know, work together and in calling each other. It's like a, I think it was um, you or, or Russ said about each other. It's like putting on a pair of old loafers. Yeah, you know, you, yeah was, you know, Russ, I think, says that in, in the thing. We've, we've always equated that it, it, playing together. It's like digging through the closet and finding those old comfortable loafers and putting them on going, oh, yeah, yeah. That's good. You know, yeah. and you go, God, why didn't that make it in the film? You know, it's like this is the hard part is now you're second guessing everything. So well, I should have yeah, yeah, I sit around and I think about other people that, you know, we could have, you know, interviewed for like guys like Paul Williams who are such fascinating oh, interviews, yeah. you know, and we did all of Paul's records and I yeah. mean, it goes on and on, but at a certain point you have to draw the line somewhere and you just yeah. kind of go, it's like people like with my book, you know, and people go, oh, you, oh so-and-so's not in. And I go, we were losing our minds. I said, we got 6,000 pictures. I still have 7,000 I didn't use. Like, yeah. yo, yo, Ma's not in it. And I screwed up. And, you know, it is what it is. But I, I think from my standpoint, I'm I'm still the, I'm the most jacked up right now to sit in, in, uh, in Woodstock and see an audience respond. You know, just yeah. see what 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 a what vibe is going to come out of this and i want to talk to people i mean we'll do a q a after and then i like to, you know hang out and talk to people and just see you know what's going on with this because we're too close in our own way so you really want yeah, to scary. see it is scary in a lot of ways there tom yeah in a weird way because usually we would have had a lot of screenings before we got into festivals we would have you know really worked it and the only reason we didn't is because um, we were getting good feedback, but also um, COVID. COVID, COVID, you know, you last you know, last year you couldn't in six months you couldn't even have a group of people in a room, and so that's kind of like we're so in a sense our first real screens are festivals, which is very weird. I mean that would never usually happen. I just think we just got I must say lucky, but we got in. I'm sure there's going to be things I'm going to go, oh, we should tweak that. And then but we'll see. Well, yeah. I, I think it, I think it's going to be a huge success. And I, I yeah, can't wait to see it. I can't remember the last time I was this excited to watch a documentary. Um, and thank you so much for taking the time, both of you, to come thank on. Uh, I'm glad that the uh, Wi-Fi settled uh, down yeah, after that initial, uh, that initial ordeal yeah. for you both. There's um, nothing worse so than prepping something like this. And then as soon as it starts, shit goes wrong and you're going, yeah. oh, really? Really? Come on. Yeah. You know, it makes you crazy. But yeah, it, it was good. Thank you for the invite. This is great talking to you. No, Thanks, real, guys. Real honor. And thank you both, um, you know, for the music and for the, you know, the amazing documentaries uh, and movies and, uh, have, have a great time at Woodstock and I'll be in touch Denny you know whenever you want to time this um, we can make it happen then you know there's no regimented schedule yeah give me a couple of days that'd be great I'll let you know sounds good yeah, right, guys. And when it when it's when it wins the Oscar maybe we'll come back here and talk about that sure. that would that yeah. be that would be awesome <laughs> uh, remember the little people Oscar Meyer Oscar what are you talking about this yeah. is the hot dog yeah, a little, the little Oscar <laughs> A little Oscar, a little hot dog. Okay. <laughs>